Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Safia Kazi, Privacy Professional Practices Principal for ISACA. Joining me today from RGP is Janice Parthen, Vice President of Advisory and Project Services, and Lynn Rowland, Vice President of Risk and Compliance, Global Security, Privacy, and PCI Lead. They're here to talk to us today about managing data privacy risks and compliance with a distributed workforce. So Janice, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, before we really get into the discussion, Janice, can you start off by giving us a little bit of background about yourself and RGP? Oh, yes, happy to. I'm Janice Parthen, VP within RGP's Advisory and Project Services team. And I currently lead a number of cross-functional initiatives within finance, accounting, risk, and compliance. Um, and most of my expertise and background has been primarily in technology and process uh, control design, as well as risk management and continuous improvement for clients. Thanks. And then same question for you, Lynn. Can you give us some background about yourself and what it is that you do for RGP? Sure. So Lynn Rowland, and I am our Vice President for Global Cybersecurity, Data Privacy, and PCI practice. And I have um, I come out of the big four. I've been with RGP for five years. And um, over the last 30 some years, I've been focused um, not exclusively on data privacy, but that's where I started. And um, in the last 10 years have also picked up and spearheaded our business and um, practice around cybersecurity and information governments. Great, thanks. Now, so to get us into our big discussion today, I'm kind of curious to hear what you think the general public and consumers and how they perceive privacy. Specifically, what exactly is their perception when an organization asks them to provide their personal information? Well, Sophia, it's a great question. And traditionally, individuals and consumers are concerned about sharing personal records, such as the date of birth or social security number. But now data includes what's on social media, such as your personal views, your news, your, your connections, and even your browser searches. So, um, and also in addition to event-driven data, such as the request for vaccination information from your employers in the last one to two years, so there's so much data that's associated around an individual. And according to Forbes and International Data Corp, from 2010 to 2020, the amount of data created, captured, and copied, and consumed in the world increased from 1.2 trillion gigabytes to 59 trillion gigabytes. And the amount of digital data created over the next five years will continue to double. So as more data is being captured and collected, it's also creating increasing distrust by consumers um, on privacy. And in some cases, it's deterring customers and consumers from using products and services. Several organizations have surveyed on this topic as well. One is the Pew Research Center. Um, they conducted a survey in 2019 with over 4,000 adults to research about Americans' views on privacy. And according to the survey, over 50% of the adults surveyed decide not to use a product or service because of concerns on how much personal information can be collected. And adults have experienced data breaches also were more likely to avoid the products or services if they have concerns uh, around privacy. And then also Cisco tends to conduct a consumer privacy survey annually 
and in 2021 gathered data that in included approximately 2,600 adults in 12 countries. And from the results, the consumers want control and transparency with respect to business data practices. And almost half feel like they were unable to effectively protect their data, also because not knowing how their information is being used. But for the ones who decide to take action to protect their data, they do eventually terminate the use over privacy concerns. And so I know a lot of people are talking about the benefits that AI could bring, but I want to talk a little bit about AI from a privacy perspective. How do you think that AI has impacted the public and consumer perception of companies' use of personal information? You know, there are a lot of benefits to AI and decision um, making technology, having to utilize technology to make advancements, such as improving finance, a monthly close or operational customer service be able to reduce the reputation and the human error, and then also be able to predict preferences, perhaps from streaming services or from weather patterns to better provide user experience or more accurate information. But then there's also been unethical use of AI, such as inserting political interventions or violating privacy by capturing unconsented information. Or it can just simply be because concerns on unintended biases, and that could be someone having to seek a loan or having to seek a job interview. So as AI is being utilized to contribute to more personal decisions, more consumers will question the automated decision-making process. Now, I'd like to be able to just go back to the Cisco Consumer Privacy Survey that I just had mentioned. As it was interesting, over half of the consumers surveyed were concerned about the use of their personal information, AI, and automated decision-making, and feel that abuse has eroded trust. And it was interesting how Cisco had surveyed in that Cisco had provided six different use cases to test the respondents' reactions. And where personal data will be involved in automated decision-making scenarios, in the example, the least trusted scenario was to infer your mental health status and recommend counseling services. The second least trusted scenario was an example to select you for a job interview. And then with the most trusted service to match you to a sales representative, which is the least personal aspect of the user case scenario. I would still say that what's important to consumers is that they want transparency and they want some control over how their personal information is managed and used. And this is also applicable to AI. I also just want to add that to get consumers comfortable with AI technology, it'd likely be beneficial to share and publish clear and understandable information and message regarding how the AI tools are used and provide that transparency. Yeah, thank you so much for those insights about consumers and their perception of privacy. But I'm curious now, what exactly does this perception of privacy mean for organizations? First of all, I think it's uh, as mentioned earlier, it's important to provide the transparency to consumers and users, but then also to provide that transparency, it's important to have the organization's data lifecycle well-established and articulate those activities through consent and a privacy policy or statement. I also liked how ISACA highlighted key elements to have a successful privacy program. The five must-dos for a successful privacy program 
2022 and beyond, which includes the point on effectively managing and understanding your data you already have. Going back to the consent and privacy policy and statement, this communication occurs in the collection phase of the data lifecycle. And in the collection phase, two key elements I just mentioned, obtaining consent and communicating a privacy notice or policy are ways to be able to help provide transparency to the remaining phases of how data is handled and it's used after collection. And then interesting enough, recently, one of the significant developments pertaining to this phase is around data collection by organizations that don't directly interact with customers or data consumers. It's often referred to as third-party data. And the data is often shared or bought or sold on data marketplaces and exchanges. The major development here has been the push from regulators and tech companies to reshape how data can be collected from third parties, which has significant impact to the marketers. And there's a growing trend from tech companies to remove third-party cookies from browsers and third-party access to unique identifiers and for devices. So for example, Apple developed an app tracking transparency feature for devices in 2021 requiring apps to ask for permission to track a user's activity across other companies' apps and websites. And Google is exploring alternatives to third-party cookies on Chrome and unique identifiers on Androids. We should keep an eye out on these developments. And now in the use phase, it depends on the organization and the data collected, but ultimately use is limited consent or essentially limited to the purpose defined and this is where organizations should be transparent about their use, whether it's to improve the user experience or for decision-making, as discussed earlier and with examples shared from the Cisco survey. And then secondly, what's important is to provide the consumers the confidence that their data is secure. And this is through data protection and security management. So according to the Verizon 2021 Data Breach Investigations Report, Personal data is the second most sought after data types as personal data is used for financial fraud further down the line and have resale value for cyber criminals. And in scenarios where employees are making mistakes, it is more likely involving personal information. Data protection also includes understanding your organization's risk exposure and what data is relevant internally, if confidential, or externally, such as PII, and conducting that data inventory of what's being collected, although this is not an easy task to deal with. I also just want to add to consider risk and task or functions that are being outsourced, such as what data the third party handles and what is necessary to conduct a due diligence to manage the security risk and address any stakeholder concerns. Yeah, and I think when we talk about privacy, it's almost impossible to not talk about what we're seeing as far as laws and regulations. Uh, it seems like things are changing really quickly here in the United States, for example, just recently a new state, Utah, passed a privacy law. So I'm curious, can we hear your thoughts on the rapidly evolving regulatory landscape surrounding privacy? Yeah, so Sophia, I'll, I'll take that one. The, the data privacy regulatory landscape 
it's really been in a constant state of flux the past two years. And I think that's in part due to the um, pandemic, but I think it's also because we've seen the states moving forward with protecting their own citizens' personal data, as well as that continued focus by country-specific regulations. More recently, Brazil uh, and China, for example. So it hasn't been really easy to predict all the impacts that are expected um, from year to year, like we could do five years ago or 10 years ago outside of GDPR. So if you had asked me back in December 2019 what I thought the top privacy issues or regulations were going to um, include as of, um, you know, for 2020, I probably wouldn't have picked work from home or preparing a predominantly remote workforce across the globe. Um, as a major privacy risk. And, and while teleworking obviously has been in place for years, prior to the pandemic, I would say that it was just typically only peppered throughout an organization's workforce. Um, it, was, it was definitely the exception, not the norm. And what's interesting is, is shortly before the lockdowns, I had a lot of industry colleagues and clients asking back in March and April of 2020, if the effective date of the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA regulations would likely be pushed out or if certain enforcement deadlines were going into effect would be relaxed. And I said, I didn't think so I, because those uh, drafts and uh, public comments had been out for a while and there was a lot of sweat equity into that. And so we prepared our clients accordingly, but some thoughts on the impacts to the regulatory landscape. Well, I think since March 2020, we've, we've seen a few more states try to follow um, California in their pursuit of regulation similar to CCPA or now CCPA 2.0, the California Privacy Rights Act, right? The CPRA doesn't go into effect until January 2023, but CPRA, as we know, applies to all information collected from this past January 1st, 2022 onward. So anyway, you had mentioned Utah as having been one of the more recent uh, states that have passed their own regulations. I find that personally, Virginia and Colorado have passed independent but very comprehensive privacy legislation. Again, that's those will be effective in January 2023 and July 2023, respectively. And the laws are pretty unique to them. So um, they're not likely a copy and paste right out of, you know, the CCPA or CPRA or GDPR, although those are um, certainly reference points um, that we've seen states look at. Seven states currently have active data privacy bills, and I think 19 proposed laws last session in 2021, and either they failed or they were postponed for various reasons. But at least some of those states, along with a few new ones, will likely propose new bills in the 22 legislative sessions. Yeah. And what are some of the key challenges that your clients at RGP have encountered in, let's say, the last 12 to 18 months? Well, throughout the past 12 months, we've We've completed a number of data privacy and cybersecurity support around probably four major business needs, you know, either performing program maturity reviews or conducting compliance readiness assessments 
spearheading audits or, or just helping to remediate program gaps and risks. But I'd say um, some of the themes in 2021 that we saw, if I broke it down into like maybe four sectors in the hospitality and leisure sector, um, the challenges tended to be a lack of control owners that were identified for data security um, and, and application controls where a lot of personal data resided. And I think a second one in that industry sector tended to be a lack of documented procedures and processes for newer applications. And in some instances, that's just because the hospitality and leisure sector, I think, were one of the hardest hit for staff reductions due to the pandemic. In the finance sector, some of the themes that we saw were a lack of controls that were designed to help mitigate reoccurring data incidents. That and a lack of asset management controls either to operationalize track or, or to monitor assets like data. And then also a lack of training for role-based positions. Most explicitly that may have been required by law. So you would think that after 20, 25 years of the HIPAA data privacy regulation which requires training, there's still pockets that are out there and a lot of them are, are newer, smaller organizations or pre IPO. Um, but even for CCPA, we, we found that a number of organizations weren't training the right people, or if they were on the right topics, such as data subject requests. In the retail sector, we saw a lack of policies and procedures around identity and access management. And why? Because when sh shops close, um, for, for some organizations um, in retail, especially a, a handful of our clients, their business boomed. Right. And so they, they weren't ready to keep peace with the business that they were getting. So there was a delay in adoption for like identity and access management platforms. Right. And that's important because you want to know who has access to the information for what purposes and that it's pretty locked down, especially if people are working remote. And finally, I think on the healthcare side, the issues tended to be a lack of standards and procedures around periodic reviewing um, or handling of third-party and vendor access credentials. And then I would also say a lack of effective data security and, and data privacy training. So those are things that we saw at a high level across four different sectors in the past 12 months or so. Yeah. And so Lynn, I think you've mentioned remote work a little bit. The pandemic really accelerated that, but it's clear that remote work isn't really going anywhere anytime soon. So how has this distributed workforce impacted privacy? And specifically, I'm curious about the ways in which data is protected for consumers, employees, vendors, third parties, et cetera. Yeah, I agree. Seeing how remote work to some degree for most organizations is the new normal. This means that there's I think an urgent call to action, an urgent need to strengthen privacy policies to communicate them to employees and vendors and ensure cyber defenses are designed to identify and protect those assets. Inventory data elements the organization collects or processes or stores, I, I think identify hardware and software in which personal data is residing to ensure, again, proper defenses of the assets are secure and that access to servers and, and databases in the network are really buttoned up and locked down. As a result, though, I, I think the impact of a distributed workforce, we've been advising clients on what, where, and, and how to implement updates like password policies, getting a lot more vigilant 
and tightened up in that respect. Third-party risk assessments, ensuring that contractual language about cyber, but especially data privacy expectations are communicated well and that are checked. Uh, I mentioned earlier our identity and access management controls and practices and adopting two-factor authentication. These are things that um, organizations are doing as a result of data privacy in a distributed workforce. Um, I can name a few others, but you know, one of the things that really uh, sets with me is, is the robust and ongoing training. You just can't deliver enough of it and the content to employees um, and to vendors to identify and combat the cyber attacks, right? I mean, the very data assets, personal uh, data of consumers or employees or vendors are always at risk with a distributed workforce because employees default to what they know and what they've been trained on. So that that's a big one that I think um, a lot of our clients um, have been impacted by. So these conversations that we've had with them and the implementation support we've provided has not just been for good cyber hygiene practices, right? Because cyber and data privacy are not mutually exclusive, right? But they're the result of how a distributed workforce impacted the way in which organizations are safeguarding, among other things, their personal data of their customers, employees, and increasingly um, for vendors and third parties. One of the other interesting things about a distributed workforce that I've noticed, I mean, just in this interview we're doing right now, we're all seeing each other's homes. Typically, if we were doing this, you know, in February of 2020, we might be seeing each other's cubicles. In your work with clients, have any organizations had employees that have had privacy concerns with that and pushed back about, you know, what are the implications of me working from home and potentially my supervisor or coworkers knowing more about my home or family? I haven't seen that. I have not heard that from our clients. It's interesting. There have been Buffer always conducts an annual telework or remote survey. I think OWL is, is another one. And what we're finding is that somewhere in the order of like 98% of employees that have been surveyed are saying that they want some arrangement for remote work, either um, you know a couple of days a week or 100%. And that same 98 are willing to walk away from a job if an employer isn't going to give it to them. Now, there may be other intrinsic values and they're willing to step away from it. But when you look at two very similar types of recent surveys, I don't hear the pushback. But I do see that um, a number of organizations are making key investments for um, their their privacy programs um, that's going to help enable uh, among other things, better privacy practices, better managed privacy risks, and as well as um, probably better enable a remote workforce. And I can share some of those. Yeah. So on that note, what are some of those key investments that organizations might want to think about making? And just as importantly, how can they pitch that to executive leadership? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I'll be able to get to all of them, but you know, some initial thoughts is you know, based on our experiences with clients in the marketplace, probably across a dozen different industries. Now, I mentioned four or five earlier, but I recommend some of the investments such as a good data asset inventory tool or, or data flows. And, and Janice had touched upon that earlier. Probably all in agreement, 
not only do many of these privacy regulations stipulate that organizations must be able to respond to an individual right that's a data subject has requested or an individual in California about the data that's collected or processed on them, but how can you effectively protect the data that you don't know you have or where it's located, right? You can't, which is why you're also not likely to understand the impact of a potential data breach or a cyber attack in order to respond um, swiftly and effectively. So we're um, tool agnostic, if you will, technology agnostic at RGP. So we look at everything in the marketplace. And um, But I would say if when we, when we talk about a good data asset inventory tool or one that can provide the, the, the data flows, we know that some of those that are out there that are doing this are OneTrust or TrustWave, and they, they seem to be pretty well known for this option. I think another investment is a good data subject or individual rights request or rights response tool is good. You know, for a while, many clients and, and still some today are manually using tools to respond to the data subject rights that are exercised and the requests that they're receiving. And that's fine. For some, this, this may be the most pragmatic approach for a non-data intensive um, client or for a smaller organization that doesn't use dozens, if not, they don't use hundreds of third parties. However, if an organization has hundreds of thousands or millions of, of customers or consumers that they're collecting data points on, a manual task will likely be too time consuming. The life cycle of the request um, potentially is at risk for, for non-compliance. You know, specifically from a compliance perspective, a business um, that receives a request from an individual, the clock starts ticking. And depending upon the complexity of an organization, the volume of potential data subjects that could submit requests and the type of requests that they're receiving, as well as the number of business partners that might be involved or third parties that somehow are part of that individual's data that's being collected or processed. It's, I mean, you can't possibly tackle that with spreadsheets. I mean, you probably could, but there's, I think you open yourselves up to risk. So when we talk about a data subject or individual rights request received, again, we're technology neutrals, but, you know, ServiceNow or OneTrust, those are the kinds of tools that enable better management and tracking of that. And I think, I think finally, the last one that I would recommend investing in is a records management tool. And um, I, Janice touched on this earlier as well. I think um, RIM, Records and Information Management, for many organizations, many that I've seen, especially in the last you know five to 10 years, it's been like the wild, wild west, right? So when you have privacy regulations like GDPR or um, CPRA, most organizations are going to be making these investments. And if they haven't already, I, I would highly recommend that they do because if they aren't aware of the type of data that they've been storing or what data is clean or what data is compliant or even what paper records they they have that are um, offsite, like with Iron Mountain, for example, you know that makes it problematic, right? So I believe greater emphasis will be necessary and not only complying with regulations with CPRA's look back mandate, but for the data security and data privacy in general, I think um, a records management tool is, is going to be extremely useful um, and necessary. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Janice Lynn, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us. Now, if you're interested in learning more, you can click the link in the episode details for more information about RGP. I'm Safia Kazi, and thank you for tuning in.